This is chapter 134 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we feature books about resilient women, both fictional and real. As we settle into the dark days of winter, there's nothing more comforting than curling up with a good book. If that book happens to be set during the harshness of a Wyoming prairie winter, you'll be even more thankful for today's modern heating conveniences. That kind of unforgiving setting is the backdrop for One for the Blackbird, One for the Crow, the new historical fiction novel from Olivia Hawker. We chatted about her story of survival and sacrifice, which is actually based on her own family's history. It's based loosely on a family story um, that comes from, from my family's history, but in general terms, in sort of broad strokes, it's about um, love and hate living together under the same roof. And it follows the story of um, two families out on the homestead in Wyoming in 1876 who both find themselves without any adult men suddenly through a sort of surprise act that rocks both of the families. And um, the women in the families who now have very good reason to hate each other have to decide to come together and operate their two farms and sort of manage their two families together cooperatively in order to survive the winter. I don't think I'll ever look at winter the same way again. (laughs) I don't think I will either after writing that. I mean, it's such a different experience approaching winter or any other season, really, you know, as as a modern person living in (laughs) in a modern setting um, and then researching how people had to survive in that environment in that time. It was shocking. I mean, the snow got so deep and all you had was these walls made out of sod to keep you safe. And oh my gosh, it was just, I mean, the preparation everyone had to do knowing that winter was coming, it was just crazy. It actually made me a little bit scared for, for my ancestors and really kind of in awe of everybody who's had to live through winters like that. You know, at the same time, while you have this unforgiving Wyoming prairie winter, you also really get this sense for the for the gorgeousness and the beauty that spring and summer brought as well. Yeah, um, I grew up not too far from from Wyoming. I was actually in Idaho, in southeast Idaho, and um, yeah, a lot of what I wrote when I was writing about the other seasons when you know the prairie was a little more forgiving and, and welcoming um, was taken from memories from my own childhood, where I would either be out playing in the fields in Idaho or um, going with my father, who was an artist into Wyoming around the Jackson Hole area to paint because um, he would take my sister and me and my mom sometimes out there and he would paint on plein air and we would just kind of play in the field. And so I got to grow up just sort of running around on the prairie in Wyoming and it was really wonderful. It was a, it was a great experience. Were you a little bit like Beulah? I don't think so. I mean, Beulah's kind of a, Beulah's a different character for sure. She's, um, she's she's interesting because in the book she is she's just an ordinary human girl well maybe not ordinary but she's just a human girl in the book but as I was writing her I sort of told myself to write her as if she were like a nature spirit um, like a little elf or a fairy or something (laughs) who just kind of came into this ordinary world and just sort of changed it by moving through it and had this sort of etherealness to her so even though you know she's she's not anything other than human in the book um, as I was writing her, I, I had that in mind, and that, that does kind of give her a different sort of air or feeling. When, whenever she's on the page, she's just a little, things are a little strange around her. So I don't think I was like that as a kid. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty normal. <laughs> you know, you know, talking about her character and, and that, that 
like pixie type of spirit that you gave her. You could totally see how in, in, in the setting that you have it in that it might be seen as, as something superstitious. Maybe somebody might view her as a witch. Whereas if she were here in this modern age, it would just be chalked up to she be some sort of hippie child or someone who just yeah. had an affinity for nature. Yeah, exactly. I think I'm a lot like Beulah now. <laughs> in, my, in my adult form, I have turned into a Beulah-like person where I'm, just, I'm very connected to nature and I find a lot of spirituality in in um, the cycles of seasons and cycles of life and death. And that was something I really wanted to convey in this book. But yeah, in that setting, in her time and place, she would have been very unusual. And there there is a point in the book where Nettie Mae kind of comes to regard her as something not quite human or something dangerous. And I think at one point she refers to her as a witch kind of within her own private thoughts. And that is sort of what Beulah is. She's this, she is a, a she is a little slice of nature that, that is walking around in human form. And, um, and it unsettles a lot of people who come into contact with her. I love the transformation of, of Nettie Mae from this really hard, stern woman who you learn why she's become that way. It's a, a like a self-preservation method and then just to watch her evolve through the book to to where she is on on the last page yeah i'm glad you liked that i'm glad you picked up on it she she is an interesting character i really liked writing nettie may um, and she reminded me a lot as i was writing her of my mom who who you know faced really difficult circumstances my parents ended up getting divorced and my mom had to raise the two of us as a single mother um which was very hard on her, of course. And she was, you know, trying to go through school to get a degree so that she could support us. And then she was working like two jobs while she was also in school. And it was tough on her, you know, and that didn't leave her with a lot of energy to be to be uh, warm and, and loving like she wanted to be as a mother. But then um, when we were both adults and my sister had her kids, so now my mom's a grandma and it's just a, a total transformation in her. She's just become this, you know, the, the mom she wanted to be where she's just constantly playing with her grandkids and going on fun adventures with them and is just very involved in their lives. And it's really nice to get to see her, you know, get to have those maternal opportunities that she was denied because she just had to survive with us. You know, she had to keep us and herself alive. Now, her counter, her counterpoint is Cora, and it's the two of them mm-hmm. bringing their households together. And they really, like you mentioned, it's a love-hate kind of thing going on. Um is that that part of that story, is that based in your personal history where there were these two really strong women way back who had to come together? Yes, that comes from our actual family history um, where Nettie Mae Weber and Cora Bemis did find themselves with just their children and both of their you know adult men in their families gone suddenly. Um, one of them died and the other did go to jail, though not for the reason that, <laughs> that is given in the book. Um, it was a more mundane reason, I'm afraid, um, but because there had been uh, an illicit affair between the two families, Cora and Nettie Mae really did not like each other. And their only choice, really, was was to live in one household with their kids and, like, help each other raise one another's children and find some way to get along, even though they really hated each other's guts. And um, I just thought that was such an interesting scenario and such a great opportunity for drama um, that as a as a novelist, I couldn't pass it up. I knew I had to write about that that situation. There's really truth to that saying about shared struggles bringing people together. Yeah, there is. There is, I think. And and um, I think it shows with these two characters and the way they evolve and the way the nature of their relationship changes over the course of the book. You mentioned briefly about the cycle of life and death playing into this book as well. You know, it's a it's a topic a lot of people shy away from, but the way you approach it makes it seem like the most natural thing in the world, which I guess in a way it is. 
Yeah, that was something I really wanted to accomplish with this book. I guess it's kind of the message I wanted to put out into the world um, with one for the blackbird, one for the crow. I wanted people to to view death not as something as scary as we usually see it in our culture, um, but just as something that is part of life. Uh, that it's you know we can't really even if you're vegetarian or vegan you you kill something in order to eat you know you're you're pulling up a carrot by its root to eat the carrot and, and the rest of the plant you know the plant dies um we we don't nothing lives without there also being a death somewhere and i think there's some something really sacred and whole to that so i wanted to sort of recast the idea of death um not as something to shy away from or be afraid of but something to embrace and something to be viewed as as um, sacred and intrinsic in life. You say that this book is the only novel that never became onerous for you. Why is that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew why, because, boy, if I could sit down and write every book as easily as I wrote this book, I would be so happy. <laughs> I mean, writing is a really great job, and I love it. I would rather do this. Even on my worst day as a writer, I would rather write than do any job I've had in the past. <laughs> But um, much of the time, it's very difficult. It's stressful. You've got deadlines. You've just got to get a book done. And at some point, for me, and for I know a lot of a lot of other writers out there too, you become so frustrated with the book, like halfway through, or I don't know, twenty percent of the way through. You just hate it, and you just don't want to think about it anymore. But you have to keep going because you got to pay your bills, you know. Um, and Blackbird was the exception to that. I've written a lot of books under different pen names and in different genres. Um, and this is the first book that I never got sick of. I just, every single time I sat down to work on it, it just came to me so naturally, and I never had a, a bad day with it. Um, and I don't know why. <laughs> I really, really don't. Um, I wish I could do that with every book, but unfortunately, it, it hasn't happened again since Blackbird. And we should point out, we're not talking about a small book. Your book clocks in at like 479 pages. So that's 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 quite an accomplishment for it to just come to you and be so easy oh yeah and it's like i said gosh it never happened with any other book it is um i think the manuscript the final word count was like one hundred and seventy-five thousand words right around there so um long it's a long book <laughs> but yeah it, it just uh it just came to me so easily and so naturally and uh, i hope it happens again someday in my career because it was such a delight to, to get to experience that kind of easy writing so, um, but you know we'll see I know that we've we've talked about how family and personal history influenced this book. The book before as well came from a story within your family history. Are you going to be dipping into more of that for your next novel? Um, I'm not sure yet because I kind of I'm kind of got two different manuscripts that that could be the one that my publisher goes with next. Um, one of them is not at all based on a family story, and one is also very loosely based on a family story. That's um, set in the 1970s in Idaho and is, is about a lot of things that, that it doesn't appear to be on the surface, but on the surface, it's about a family of artists, which is, um, which is what I grew up in. Uh, so I'm, I'm really curious to see which one my publisher decides to go with as the follow-up for Blackbird and which, which one they decide to take as the fourth book as Olivia Hawker. So I don't know, maybe, hopefully. Um, I enjoy writing about things that are kind of loosely based on my family, um, and I really like to dig through old family records, kind of searching for more tidbits that I could turn into novels someday. So I hope it continues. And that must be fun, too, being able to dig up all that family history and finding these stories. Oh, yeah. I was raised Mormon, so genealogy was a really big part of my life growing up, and it still is now. 
um, even though I'm no longer in the Mormon faith. But it's just such a fun hobby. It's so interesting. It's so fascinating. Um, and it really, you feel the connection with your past when you're, you know, looking at old pictures and finding people from, you know, 100 years ago or whatever who kind of look like you. I found this picture recently and I sent it to my sister because um, the little girl in it looked exactly like her son when he was like five years old. I was like, look, it's Henry in little girl form from the Victorian <laughs> era. Like we got so excited about it. It's, it's really a, it's a very enjoyable um, pastime. And, and yeah, sort of a bonus as a novelist is that sometimes I'll come across, you know, some old journals from ancestors when they were crossing the Atlantic to come to America or whatever. And it's just so fun to read their stories and, and picture them in my head and think like, oh, how can I depict this on a page and like turn this into something that more readers could connect with? So, yeah, it's fun. Are there any photos of Nettie May and Cora and Clyde and Beulah around that you were able to look at? Yes, I found quite a few and I really love them. One in particular I love, I found of Clyde when he was probably, oh, in his early 20s. And he's standing next to this beautiful buckskin horse, which is how I got the idea to make his horse in the book, Joe Buck, the buckskin. Um, he's standing sort of on the ground with his arm resting up on his saddle, and he is in full cowboy regalia, just standing in this snow that's almost knee-deep, just leaning casually on his horse like you might lean on a car, you know, in the 1950s or something. And, man, he just looks so cool. I was like, oh, he was the coolest guy ever. Look at him. <laughs> and I also I have um, a really cool picture of the entire family standing in front of the sod brick house, which, which was a two-story house. I was impressed that they could have built two stories out of sod. Um, and a really beautiful photo of Cora and um, Charles Ernest Venus on their wedding day, which is really nice. I have that one actually framed and hanging up in my house. That's amazing. Just to be able to have that while you're what you're writing, which is almost like a companion piece to it. I know it's historical fiction, but you imbue so much of your family history in there. It's It's got to be wonderful for you. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It feels like such a privilege to be able to do this for my for my family and to, you know, kind of bring some of these past stories to life. Um, I really feel lucky and fortunate to, to have the skills and, and the outlet to be able to share those stories with the world. Yeah. Well, if the world wants to go check out your latest book, it's One for the Blackbird, One for the Crow. Olivia Hawker, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about the book itself and the, the whole family history behind it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great. In A Castle in Wartime, we meet Faye von Hassel, a privileged German woman living in Italy during the Nazi occupation, her family story during World War II is one of defiance, bravery, and ultimately that of a mother driven to survive by the love of her children. Author Catherine Bailey tells me what first drew her to the real-life story of the Van Hassels. Well, I set out to write a book about Italy under Nazi occupation. You know, this was a terrible time for the Italians. Uh, 150,000 civilians were killed during the last 18 months of the war when the country was divided. You know, there was terrible, uh, people were starving, uh, there were epidemics of disease. And I wanted to find a, a family who somehow encapsulated that experience. And it was uh, in the search for this that I came across the extraordinary story of, of the von Hassel family. As much as this is a story of courage under fire and political resistance and Nazi atrocities, it's really about a mother's love for her children, in particular Faye von Hassel, her two boys. They're, they're separated in the middle of the war. What do you think readers can learn from what Faye went through? I think 
just to look at the, the, the background first, you know, this, this family, when, uh, before the war begins, they're a powerful aristocratic family, um, and they have close ties to Hitler. The head of the family, Ulrich, um, is, is, has, is serving as Germany's ambassador to Rome. But when the Nazis start persecuting the Jews, he realizes that he's on the wrong side, and he joins this group, a small group of conspirators whose mission is to kill Hitler. When their plot fails, and he's rounded up by the Gestapo, the consequences for his daughter, Faye, and, and, and his grandsons are, are devastating. The SS sees the children. They, they were just two, two and four years old at the time, and, and they place them in a Nazi orphanage under new identities. And for Faye, this is the start of a terrifying journey through Europe's concentration camps. As she fights to stay alive, she has no idea whether she'll ever see her boys again. And what I suppose is so re remarkable about this story and so captivating is her courage and her determination to survive so that she can set out and find her boys. And during her time in the camps, she, her, I, she, she kept a diary and one reading... Reading it, it's, it's, it's just so incredibly moving, the way she describes the agony of separation from her children. She dreams about them at night, dreams of holding them in her arms, only to wake up to find they're not there. And when she almost dies of typhoid, typhus, it's, it's the thought of, of, of you know, the hope of seeing her children again that keeps her alive. So I think... Uh, it's it's an inspirational story because she had such courage, such integrity, and ultimately it is it is a story about the determination of a mother driven by love for her children. It's ironic too because it's that love in that first place that ends up putting her in this awful situation. Exactly, she was uh, in her early twenties when the war began. Like like any mother, she loved her children above all else. She was. She wanted to keep them safe, to protect them. And she chose to go and live at her husband's castle in the north of Italy. Uh, she could have gone to Rome, where he was in the resistance. He was in the underground resistance movements, fighting the Nazis. Um, but she, she chooses to stay there, never imagining that the Nazis are going to invade the north of Italy. Um, and as you say, the irony is, if, if she'd actually decided to keep the family together and stay with her husband in Rome, um, all the terrible things that happened uh, would, would not have happened. And so, in a way, her story is all the more powerful because like any one of us, she, she, she takes a wrong turn. She makes the wrong choice. So when, when, her, when her children are taken, her, this agony of separation is compounded by feelings of, of guilt. I think when people think about people that the Nazis persecuted, upper-class German families, they're not the first ones that come to mind. No, of course not. And, and it, it, this, this story is, it takes a very different perspective. And indeed, it was, it was the very fact that, um, that Faye was an upper-class German, which led Himmler, the SS chief, to imprison her with a group of other special prisoners political, anti-fascist political leaders, um, allied servicemen, bishops, uh, all of whom he, he thought he could use as bargaining chips in, in, with the allies uh, to save his own life when, when the war drew to a close. Can you explain the idea of Sippenhaft? Yes. Sippenhaft was 
is the concept of blood guilt. Ulrich von Hassel was involved in the uh, July 1944 Stauffenberg plot, uh, where a bomb was planted in Hitler's military, in a briefing, a military briefing room at Hitler's headquarters, and very narrowly missed killing him. After the uh, after Hitler survived the plot, he was absolutely determined to, to wreak vengeance on, on, on the plotters, but not just on the plotters, their families as well. And Himmler revived this ancient medieval law called Sittenhardt, which is the concept of blood guilt, which meant that the relatives of the plotters were as guilty of the crime as, as, as the conspirators themselves were. And as a consequence, uh, the SS rounded up some 300 relatives, family, you know, relatives, cousins, brothers, sisters, grandparents and children. And it was under this law of Sittenhaus that Faye and her boys were taken. These political prisoners who were taken, they were sent to camps, but not the same camps that uh, all everyone else, all the Jews were rounded up into. How did you straddle that line of, of showing what they went through, knowing full well that there were millions of people who were exterminated and executed? Yeah, I mean, if they and the other special prisoners were not held in, in extermination camps like Auschwitz and, and Treblinka, but they were taken to, to Buchenwald and Dachau. They were kept by Himmler under conditions of great secrecy there in, in special buildings. They, their treatment was comparatively privileged um, in that they received extra rations and they were not subjected to cruelty like the you know, to, and the suffering endured by so many of the other prisoners around them, a lot of whom were Jewish, because at that stage in the war, uh, what the Nazis were doing, they transported large numbers of prisoners from the concentration camps in the east because they wanted to use them as a workforce in armament, armament factories and to construct defences. Um, so there were a large proportion of, of the people imprisoned alongside uh, Faye and the other special, Faye and Himmler's other prisoners were, were, were Jewish or political prisoners who'd resisted the Nazis in some way. So they were incredibly fortunate, Faye and, and her group. Um, they weren't subjected to cruelty, but they were witness to the unimaginable sadism practiced by the Nazis. And um, you know, their, their testimonies are, are important for the record. And Faye saw the dead and the dying. She caught the smell of burning flesh from the pyres the, Nazi built, the, the Nazis built to burn the dead. She saw prisoners setting off on death marches in freezing temperatures. She witnessed beatings and executions. Um, and like the other prisoners, she also suffered from a sort of form of psychological torture because she or they could not understand their privileged position. You know, why were they being fastened up and provided for? They knew Himmler was protecting them for some reason, but, but for what? For what purpose? And I think um, Faye's conscience really haunted her for the rest of the life, the rest of her life. You know, like so many who'd come through the camps, she suffered from survivor's guilt, a feeling that was compounded in her case by the fact that, as she put it, her experience had been comparatively mild. Um, but her affinity with the victims of the Holocaust and her, her need to answer the, the unanswerable question why led her to read many of the memoirs written 
by survivors. And and Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, uh, that was an account of his imprisonment in Auschwitz, became a, a touchstone for her. She she kept it nearby throughout her life, and she pinned quotes from his writings, you know, to, to the desk where she worked. You also bring to light in this book the plight of refugees after the war. I'm familiar with it because my father's family were among them, but I don't think a lot of Americans realize how grave the situation was, especially when it came to displaced children. Well, Faye's story offers so many perspectives, um, not least as, as she and the other prisoners, special prisoners, were being moved from camp to camp in the last months of the war. They were caught up in a tide of millions of refugees, and we see the chaos the fighting engendered and the devastating effect it had on so many so many innocent lives. And these were people fleeing from the advancing Russians from countries like Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and from cities that <clears throat> excuse me had been obliterated by the Allies. And the statistics are staggering. You know, by May 1945, within the area encompassing the former German Reich, there were over 25 million displaced persons, the term used by, by the Allies to categorize refugees. And the collateral damage of the war is so stark in their stories, with their mental dead or absent, the vast majority are women, children, and the elderly. And, and war has completely dismantled their lives. Everything has been taken away from them, their homes, their livelihoods, their loved ones. And the situation in 1945 was, was that there were really massive numbers of um, children, children who had lost parents or both parents. And the Red Cross estimated that there were some 13 million who fell into this category. And I think one of the truly awful things about the Second World War, I mean, there are so many, but is, is that children suffered more than at any other time in history. They They had been deported, evacuated, they were victims of ethnic cleansing, um, they had been seriously injured or killed in, in, in bombing raids. And at the end of the war, it was the Allies who faced the task, almost impossible task, of reuniting these children with their relatives. And in so many instances, it was almost... it was. It, very, very difficult because some of these children had arrived, um, you know, the younger ones didn't know who they were or where they came from. Some had arrived at the camps with name tags in their clothes, which, which had borne no relation to who they actually were. They were clothes they picked up somewhere along the way. Um, so this was an immense problem and it took the Allies and, and the aid authorities many years for, to, to, to find, for, for, for them to find these children's families. And we know in Faye's case, it ended up having a happy ending. She was reunited with her two sons, although the harrowing process is is really a very compelling read. We've been talking with Catherine Bailey. The book is a castle in wartime. One family, their missing sons in the fight to defeat the Nazis. Thank you for spending some time with me today to talk about it. Thank you so much. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time, the delightful Maureen Johnson stops by to talk about the end of her truly devious mystery series. Want a sneak peek? Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.